and streaming on the web since 1996. This is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. This is Talking Soundtracks with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again, my name is Jason Drury and welcome once again to Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. Today we continue my interview with Golden Globe and two-time Emmy nominated composer and orchestrator Christopher Young, of whom I had the pleasure of talking to via clean feed at his home in Hollywood for talking soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast in December 2022. In part one, we talked about Chris's recent work on the Apple Plus TV series Echo 3, and we talked about his illustrious career from its beginnings right up to Young's scoring his seminal works on the Hellraiser series of films. We continued our conversation by initially talking about one of my favourite scores in his long career, The Fly 2. was thrilled to do that movie because it's like a classic monster movie. My favorite monster movies were ones in which the monster is a person, an actual person, who's suffering from the byproduct of an event or an activity that they had no control over that went sour. What's happened is it's deformed their exterior, and so they scare everyone they come in contact with and yet inside of them there's something really beautiful going on they're tragedies you know tragedies frankenstein is a tragedy wolfman is a tragedy about things happening to these individuals that were not expected and they're just desperately seeking love and that's what the fly 2 was eric stoltz plays the son of jeff goldblum and 
doesn't know what's going on with him and doesn't want it to be happening. And so it's a tragedy, and he falls in love. There's Daphne Zuniga, the same woman who was in my very first movie that I was just talking about. Daphne was in that. So it's a tragedy. And, of course, that allows you to write music from a different perspective. I was thrilled to be involved in that. That was a Mel Brooks-produced movie, and uh, Chris Willis directed that. And he was nice enough to say to me, you know, I'm not asking that you do anything that resembles what Howard Shore did in the first movie. As great as Howard's score was for the first movie, I was given permission to do whatever I wanted to do. Listen, I remember the recording session of that. Hellbound, I recorded in Munich, Germany. And then, as well, The Fly was the second film I'd recorded in Munich. And lo and behold, Mel Brooks came to the recording session. So he was there for the whole recording session. That was quite an experience. Because I remember the night before the recording session, we had dinner, and I was nervous. I, you know, I tried to keep my cool. But he turned to me at one point, he said, So, Chris, I hear this orchestra is so bad that I don't even know how to tune up. And I thought he was serious, of course. He wasn't. And I was, oh, no, 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 they, they can tune, you know. And he, then he started laughing. No, 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 man, I was just joking, just joking. Anyway, he had a great time there. He loved the score. And there's a cue in there, and there's this little toy clicker going. <laughs> the young son of the fly is, is sneaking around the laboratory at nighttime, I think. And there's this little clicker, and he really loved that sound. He says, oh, please, more of the clicker, more of the clicker. And so the clicker is really loud in the mix, as I recall in that. And so I, I remember at the end of the project, I, I sent him a clicker. The exact same clicker that was used, I bequeathed it to him. But my favorite cue in that, one of the last cues on the CD called Dad. I think that's my favorite. So the fly two, I did a sweep, and that cue, Dad, I'm adding choir to. I've always wished I had choir on that cue. So it could work extremely well as an acapella choir piece, too. Anyway... Where you have it.
did you feel you were typecast in, in the horror genre? Well, you know, interestingly, even when I was starting off, I was given the opportunity to do other types of movies. Going back to my New World days, they didn't just have me do Hellraiser. I did Flowers in the Attic. I did Avenging Angel. I did Defcon 4, which is a sci-fi film. I did The Telephone, which is a Whoopi Goldberg comedy movie. I did Torment, which was a thriller. Yeah, I mean, right at the beginning, I was doing things other than horror. So it's not like I had nothing to show for it. I did have these credits. I remember doing uh, Hostage to Dallas was what it was called originally. That was my first big action film. I don't know how it happened, but fortunately there were some directors who were willing to give me a shot doing non-horror films. Bat 21, uh, that just popped into my head. Uh, and dramas, Murder in the First, and Something the Lord Made, and Max and Helen. These things, I was taken seriously enough in the world away from horror that I was able to get gigs doing these kinds of movies. None of them really hit big. That's the unfortunate thing. I kept doing horror films, and... The ones that played the best in the box office were the horror films. And at the end of the day, your career is kind of built by those films that do the best in the box office. That's how you're perceived. Let's say Hellraiser had flopped, didn't become the cult classic that it is. Things may have been entirely different with my career. Man, maybe I would never had one. I don't know. But the horror films kept coming back because the biggest pictures I did were horror films, and the horror directors took an interest in me because they liked those movies. The dramas I did, the action films I did, the sci-fi films I did, none of them did very well in the box office. If any one of those movies had been a big hit, things might have been different. The one that I always wish had been a big hit was Murder in the First. That was my first big dramatic movie. It wasn't my first, but my first big one, a Warner Brothers movie. And you know, had that film done well, I don't know. If it had gone the full nine yards and got nominated for Oscars, which is what they were talking about originally, I might have gotten more gigs doing dramas.
Shipping News was the closest. That got a Golden Globe nomination for Best Picture, but never made it to the Oscars. The Hurricane, that got nominated for nothing. Maybe it did for a Golden Globe, but never made it to the Oscars. No drama I've ever worked on has ever made it into the Oscar world, and that's what you really need. You need for the film to make it into the Oscar world, and then things will click. Chances are you'll get another gig, because everyone will be talking about that movie. In answer to your question, I always wanted to do more of those pictures, and, and I was for a while, and then they all kind of dried up. The director, John A. Meal, that I developed a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful relationship with, I did five movies, I think, for him, or six, and every one of them was different. The last one we did was a drama, and unfortunately the film did not do well because the company that was promoting it went out of business, and uh, it was just... It was so sad, the outcome of that movie, because it had done so well at the Toronto Film Festival. I think it opened up the festival. It was one of the big movies at the festival. We all thought it was going to do really well, and then it just fumbled and disappeared. That one was called Creation. And I guess that was the last drama film that I ever did. Had again that done well, then things might be different. So I should have fought more to get more films outside of the horror world. I did at the beginning, but then sort of waxed as I got older. The horror films just keep coming, you know. The calls come for them. 
a new set of younger directors that were raised on Hellraiser are now calling me. It's quite remarkable. And so I'm very fortunate that there is this wave that's now becoming hot because they were raised on those movies or wanting me to score them their movies. So that's pretty cool. You mentioned your collaboration with Sean O'Mell. Another collaboration you had was with director Lassa Halstrom, which included The Shipping News. But a later score for Halstrom, An Unfinished Life, ended up being rejected in favour of a score by one of your pupils at USC, Deborah Lurie. Tell us the events of what happened on your work on An Unfinished Life and what was your reaction when you found out that your score had been rejected? Again, you know the, the saying, you've heard this before, you're not a real film composer until you've had a score thrown out. Everybody, except I think John Williams, maybe John Williams hasn't had a score thrown out. He's probably had cues thrown out, but I don't think he's had scores thrown out. So maybe he's not really a real film composer according to that definition. Unfinished Life was not the first film score he'd had thrown out by any stretch of the imagination. By the time Unfinished Life came around, I think it had happened, well, I can think of twice immediately. The first being Invaders from Mars, the Toby Hooper picture. The majority of that score was thrown out. The second one was a film called Jersey Girls, and that majority of that score was thrown out. Maybe I think the whole thing was thrown out. I can tell you that when Invaders from Mars was thrown out, that was at the beginning of my career at Toby Hooper. Not all of it was thrown out. The orchestral stuff was kept, but the electronic stuff, for the most part, was dropped because it was too nutty. It was. It's one of my favorite scores, by the way, because it's so unlike anything. I can't quite draw parallels to other film scores at the time. Done a suite. There's like a 30-minute suite from that continuous thing that's what i think represents the score the best
but after that, you know, I was pretty down in the dumps, man. I was, I mean, I don't want to say I was suicidal, but I was so depressed. I was getting as close as one can get to that. I was very, very hurt and thought my career was over. I destroyed my career. Fortunately, I got a call within weeks from that, and so it wasn't over. By the time Unfinished Life came around, I heard again for different reasons. I had done shipping news so successfully with Vlasa and, and they loved it. So the follow-up film was Unfinished Life. It was the last picture of, a, I think, a three-picture deal he had with Harvey Weinstein at Miramax. He had a terrible time on that movie. He was extremely unhappy with the way it turned out. Lhasa was a very mellow, soft-spoken guy, and I, you know, I think he lost his cool screaming about how much he disliked Harvey by that time. So I scored the movie, and, and here's the weird thing about this, is that that was scored in London. I was asked to write a different version of the score for Harvey. There was two versions. There was Lhasa's version and Harvey's version. Glasser was very uncomfortable talking about music. He didn't come to London. Rather, he would listen to playbacks and then talk about them. When he found out at nighttime that I was doing Harvey's score, quite understandably, he was furious. And he felt like I had abandoned ship. And, and I, I felt really bad about this, but I had no choice. So the film didn't come out. It was put on a shelf for a while. And then, I guess, yes, Deborah was called in just before they got the green light, I think, to now the film's going to come out. I think she may have used some of my themes or something, but she came in and rescored it entirely. I think she was very, very uncomfortable about it because, again, she was a student of mine at USC. Here's the scoop, is that it was going to get rescored, and there was no way around it. I was thrilled for her that she got that job. I've always told her, you know, I, I'm okay with it. I get it, and you did a good job, and you did what they asked for, and, and apparently something went wrong and I didn't, and so bravo. I'd, I'd rather it go to someone who's an, you know, an ex-student of mine than someone that I didn't know. You know, I've had scores thrown out. I've rescored other composers' rejected film scores. It, it's a weird world in which we live. I'm personally I'm surprised not more scores get thrown out because we have so little time to get to know the taste of a, a director we've never worked with before and then to come up with the right solution for the movie under such short notice when there's an infinite variety of ways to go, it just amazes me that, that more scores aren't thrown out. Not because they're not great. Please don't misunderstand me. It's just that there's a misunderstanding or something.
Again, I think that the score for Invaders from Mars is one of my favorites because it's so experimental. Uh, but apparently it was not what they thought was right for the movie. As I've humorously said, they wanted music about Mars, not from Mars. So there you have it. You've recorded a number of scores in the UK and Europe. How do you compare the musicians, European musicians, to the ones in the US? You know, I have such tremendous fond memories of my time with orchestras here in the United States. I look back on those days as representing a different life. I haven't done anything with an orchestra here in years. And so it almost seems like it's a past life. Little did I know when I finished up whatever score it was that was the last score that I did in town and I should do my homework and figure this out. When I walked off the lot of that studio, whichever studio it was, little did I know that that was going to be the last time I was going to score a movie in town for an orchestra. But that's the way it turned out. I'm not alone in that most of us have had to go overseas to record. I love the musicians in Los Angeles. As much as I love the musicians overseas, I would, of course, prefer to be back here in town recording on the stages I used to record on. Having said that, I've worked with a lot of different orchestras overseas. The one that I've been working with more than not as of the last 10 years or so was the one in Bratislava. That orchestra seems to get my music really well, and I adore what they do. I love working in this studio that I use all the time. It's a concert hall. I love the team I put together there. Everything works out well. They, there seems to be an understanding about what's best for the, my stuff, and so I have a good experience there. Other composers experience the same elation, but with different orchestras. That's my preferred orchestra right now. I will miss not being able to record here in town. I will miss that until the day I kick the bucket but I'm not allowed to do it. There's not the money to do it. And so I love the musicians overseas as well for trying so hard to do their best to make the score the best they can make it. And so I have nothing bad to say about overseas. Not one thing. I praise them. They're all great musicians. I've been so lucky to work with the great musicians that I've worked with over the years be they here or there. Can you remember your favorite recording studios that you worked in? Here in town, I'd have to say my favorite was uh, Sony. You know, Sony was the old MGM studio. And now I haven't been back there in years. It's now called the Barbara Streisand Studio, I think. The stage itself, they were wise enough not to try to fix something that wasn't broken. So when you walk on that stage, you're stepping back in time. The stage looks pretty much exactly the same way it did when Judy Garland was in there singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow, when Miklos Rocha was recording the score to Ben-Hur. 
and all the MGM musicals were recorded there and scores during Johnny Green's reign as the head of the music department. There's so much history on that stage and you feel it the minute you walk into that room. In the recording booth, where the consoles are and the tape machines, that's expanded, that's changed, that's been updated. But the stage itself remains the same. So I would say, yeah, I recorded at Paramount, I recorded it at Fox, I recorded at Radford. That was a great studio. That was designed, I believe, by Sean Murphy. And for my money, that stage had the closest to a concert hall environment sound. Again, to me, the best recordings of orchestras are ones in which you don't sense the walls. The orchestra to the left, to the right, to the front, to the rear seems to go on endlessly. And that room seemed to do that pretty damn well. That was its strength. Sony was clarity. You got the room sound, but you also got the sparkle. There was a sonority there that I can't quite describe. I love Paramount, too, but it was a different sound. Warner's I recorded at. I'm going to have to say this probably was, as much as I loved the stage, maybe not it was one of the top of my favorites, but I was always thrilled to record there. Don't misunderstand me. A great stage, and what a history. And, you know, Korngold and Steiner and... Waxman all recorded there repeatedly. It's now called the Clint Eastwood stage. Anyway, they're all great. But of the local ones, probably Sony would be at the top of my list.
just you mentioned before, you, you teach a music class at USC. How did that start? Uh, I teach at USC plus a lot of other places overseas, uh, both in Spain and in Bulgaria. My experience at USC started because I was asked by Bruce Broughton, the great film composer slash just concert composer, to sub for him one night. He asked me if I'd be willing to sub for him, and I said, sure. I was nervous as shit. I didn't know what I would be able to do to keep the room alive. Buddy Baker, who was then running the program, the famous Disney composer, Buddy Baker was running the film scoring program, and he was sitting in the room when I was doing my two-hour spiel. I must have prepared something, because at the end of it, he came up to me and he said, you know, I think you have the possibility of being a really good teacher. I said, no, nah, no, nah, buddy, I, I'm not equipped. I, I never got my teaching certificate. No, nah, I don't think so. He goes, no, I would have to disagree with you. Please, can you give it a try? I said, how so? He goes, well, listen, why don't we start off by you just visiting the class once or twice a semester? And I said, okay. And then eventually it, it evolved into a full-time class. But it was basically entirely Buddy Baker believing that there was this closeted teacher that needed to emerge, and he was right. I don't know how successful a teacher I am. There's the other element of, of mentoring and encouraging young composers, and I think maybe I do that pretty well. I'm meeting composers all the time, not only through USC, but when I go overseas, I always meet every year 60 new composers that are dreaming, or some of them are dreaming to come into LA, and I try to guide them in moving out this way. And I have composers staying in my house who are just wanting to come here to check out the Los Angeles scene. I used to have a house that I bought years ago whose purpose was to have rooming available for composers from overseas or the United States. Anyone could come stay there who were wanting to get into the film scoring scene. I wanted to charge them nothing, have it rent-free, but I couldn't do that. It was really cheap rent, the smallest I could possibly ask for to keep the place going. So that part of my life I get excited about. I'm constantly getting emails from composers that are asking advice or can you help me do this or that, or I'm in a spot, or I need some cash, can you lend me some cash, or I'm depressed, can we talk? I spend lots of time with young composers. I would have to say they're probably my closest friends out here. I don't hang out with the more established people my own age. I don't hang out with Hans or Danny or James or any of these guys. They've got their own lives, but the younger composers constantly I'm in contact with them, and, and it's a good thing. Sort of keeps me young at heart, I think. I also know that you're involved with Michael McGeehy's Discovery series concerning the Virgin musical Bernard Herrmann. How did you get involved collaborating with that project with Michael? That was, um, he's an ex-student, and he had in his mind that he really wanted me to be a part of this, so he approached me and said, could you do this? 
Yeah. So that's, it's new for me. I mean, something I'd never done before. And it only happened because I knew him in advance. Again, he was an ex-USC student. And so there was the relationship that was developed there. He worked at BMI for a while, or was it ASCAP? I don't know, but we spent time together during that period as well. And then he since left them. And this was a project that was dear to him. So he asked me to be a part of it. do you feel about the quality and state of film music today? I totally am a believer in that the best film music is film music that first and foremost fulfills the needs of the scene that it's written for, but once removed from the picture has an internal logic to it that allows it to be appreciated and loved as simply music because there's a certain vitality, a certain inner logic that makes it seem to make sense away from the film. And so, yes, when I was younger, I had fantasies of the concert world being taken over by film music. The thing that's so wonderful about film music is it has to be dramatic. It might not be great music, but it's got to be dramatic music, successful dramatic music. And so it elevates it into a world that often concert music isn't a part of. So to me, the best scores are always ones that can be extracted from the project that it's written for and hold up on the concert stage. And there's so many that do. As I pointed out earlier, unfortunately, a lot of them don't get their time of day on the concert stage because the films that they were written for bombed. I wish film music would be performed regardless of the title of the film. It's changed dramatically, of course, since I first started. I would never want to say that I'm almost like a sourpuss that's going to say, oh, things back in the old days, it was so great that this happened, which has been abandoned, and that's why 
current film music is not great, but it's changed. Some believe that film music today, it's hard to distinguish an individual voice, that it's, there's a certain amount of generic elements to a lot of it, and it's interchangeable, and the voice of the composer isn't so obvious. I'm not going to say that. I'm, I'm just going to say that since we've moved into the synth world, so much film music is being accomplished in a home studio situation, and there's so little time. Generally, what happens is the composer is forced to refer to sample libraries that are produced by factories. And the similarity in these bag of tricks from composer to composer forces them to sort of operate in a a similar language. Now, one could say that, wait a second, yeah, but with an orchestra, you got the same instruments from one orchestra to the other. I mean, it's basically woodwinds, brass, strings, and percussion. Yes, there's truth in that. I'm a guy who loves writing for acoustic instruments. I love the electronic thing. Don't misunderstand me. But thank the Lord I was lucky enough to start my career at a time in which you had to learn how to write for orchestral instruments. You had to be able to write catchy tunes. If you couldn't write catchy tunes, you were not going to have a career, really. And now it does not important. Tunes are not important anymore. As a matter of fact, they can work to your disadvantage. So, yeah, it's changed. I, I love it. I love it all. In your career to date, which of the scores that you've composed are you most proud of? Oh, there's a number of them, I guess. You know, for different reasons, of course. I'm not proud of the score I did for The Dawn That Drip Blood, the first movie, but it was The Firstborn. I never listened to it. I never will listen to it ever again. But the fact that it happened, I have to feel okay about that. Hellraiser, of course, was a career changer. Murder in the First was the first drama. I'm proud of that. Let's see here. Jeez, The Vagrant was a weird one. I remember getting a compliment from Jerry Goldsmith and from Mel Brooks. It was extremely positive about that score. I mentioned uh, the rejected score for Invaders from Mars, Spider-Man stuff, the stuff I did with Sam Raimi, uh, pretty much all the films that dragged me to hell. I feel good about that one. The Monkey King scores. I, I, I can't pick out one that I say, this is it. Blessed Child. I remember the suite that I've put together for that I like very much, especially the end title. So... I I can't answer that question. I'm sorry. Fortunately, I have a relationship and still think fondly of most of the scores I've worked on. Now, as you have completed Echo Free, what future film projects do you have in the pipeline which you are able to tell us about? Well, I've got two coming out. The first one is coming out called The Offering. The second one is called The Piper. The Cabin of Curiosities episode, the autopsy I did, that's that's played. I worked on a CD uh, produced by Evan Bogart, who was an extremely successful songwriter for major pop stars called Lovecraft. I don't know if you heard about that, but I was approached to write interlude music for that and to arrange some of the songs. So that was an exciting project. There's this Nosferatu thing that I'm doing, which is 
writing a score for an, a live performance against picture next year. And that's the thing that I'm focused on right now. So that's kind of it. Yeah, that's it. One of these projects that I'm doing here, my friend, is I've taken all of most of my older scores, my dramatic scores, and converted them into what I call something closer to concert pieces. Sometimes they're one continuous movement or subdivided into multiple movements. Well, I've done that frequently on the CDs of scores of mine, but now I went back and did it to virtually all of the scores that I had an affinity with. This started years ago. I've been doing it for years. It would have been done a year and a half ago, but all of a sudden I got a bunch of jobs. I was nearly completed it, but it got put on hold. So I'm planning on releasing a box set of what's going to amount to 28 CDs or so, something like that, 70 different scores, or maybe that I've created these suites, extracted the music, reworked it into something that more resembles what that music might have been had it not been written for a movie. Now, what does that mean? The way film scores are generally presented these days, or always, has been cues in an order. Sometimes in the order of the picture, that's very popular now, or just in a listening order, but essentially it's cue, space, 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 in which you're getting individual tracks that range anywhere from a minute to six minutes. And I just think that's sort of a cursed format. It's great on one hand, but it certainly shouldn't be the only way in which film music can be presented. And so this box set is to try to redefine how this music can exist. So that's become a side project, which will be done after this slew of projects I'm working on now. I'm going to return to it, get it done once and for all. So sometime next year, this will be coming out. And at that point, our interview stopped. Chris was late for another appointment, and so we ended up finishing the interview with one question remaining. Very kindly, Christopher Young agreed for us to talk again in January 2023, this time via Zoom, to answer that final question. And this was the question. When you reach the end of your career, how would you like to be remembered by film music fans? Like all of his film scores, Chris gave this question a great deal of thought and produced one of the greatest and most detailed answers we've had so far on Talking Soundtracks. Uh, okay. This is a killer question. This is a question that as we get older, film composers, anybody on this planet, we go out of our way to avoid being asked this question by someone else. Yet, we ask it within ourselves nearly every day. There's not a day that goes by where I don't ask myself, how do I want to be remembered? Of course, when I was younger, that wasn't the case. I was just trying to figure out how am I going to get through this score and get the next one happening. But as you get older, it's inevitable that you avoid being asked that question. But at the same time, 
you're asking yourself that question constantly. What is the value of what I've done? So I've written a five points or six points out, and I'm going to read them. The first one is that I gave each and every project I was on 150% of myself, that I never wrote down to a movie that I thought was beneath me, that I tried to treat each one as if it was gone with a wind. I am uncomfortable with other composers ghostwriting for me. So if the score succeeded that I wrote, if the score succeeded, it was entirely my doing. And if it failed, it would be was because of me as well. That that's something I've always said. What are you most proud of about what you've done? And I will say that I honestly can say without bullshitting that every project I've worked on, I always give it my absolute best. And sometimes it may seem absurd to an outsider to stress over something which in all probability won't play for more than 15 minutes in the theater before it's removed and put on the DVD. I don't allow myself to think about that. Rather, as my teacher, the only person I studied film score writing with was David Raxon, you know, who wrote the score to Laura. And he was the one who kept on saying, well, you got to think of each picture. I don't care how bad it may be. It's just it was gone with the wind. And he would say that frequently, not over and over again, but enough so that it all made sense. I would have done that anyway, but it was nice to hear him articulate that. So that's the most important thing. You may like the music, you may hate it. That's okay. But the nice thing that, that goes on inside of me, in my heart, is that I know that if it succeeded, it truly was me, not somebody else writing for me. And if it failed, it was also truly me and not someone else writing for me. That's number one. Number two is I always tried with each and every cue to make sure it not only served the scene it was written for, but might be able to stand on its own two feet when removed from the movie, that each cue was dramatically potent and musically vital. As you know, the best film music is music that serves the needs of the picture, but at the same time when it's removed is incredibly compelling music to listen to, that there's an internal logic to it that is undeniable. And what I mean by vital music is music that once that composer gets the, the initial three or four, maybe sometimes even just two notes, like to the Jaws motive. It can be as, as short as two notes. It can be a phrase that once the composer comes up with that series of notes that generate the opening of that cue, it's alive and it just needs to move forward in time. Like the shark in Jaws, it rushes forward. It has to be moving. My favorite film music, you get that sense that there is an, an inevitability in the way it moves through time. So at the conclusion of the cue, you go, oh, this was the perfect ending. It, it, I can't imagine this cue going anywhere else than where it went and ending where it ended. Anyway, I've tried to do that in every cue. I'm not saying I succeeded, but I've tried. That's important. Number three. This is more a statement about soul music in general. 
Number three, I hope that film music one day will be evaluated on its own terms, regardless of the success or failure of the movie it is written for. It is still the case that no film score will have a lasting impact if the film itself is an Oscar material, so to speak. The general public is only interested in the film's work if it's written for a movie they think is great. Too much good music has been lost in time because no one cared for the movie it was written for. That, to me, is the direct greatest tragedy of film music, that it can't be thought of on its own merits. It always has to be addressed as something that is codependent on the picture it was written for, like a leech or something like that. And you go to film music concerts, and generally speaking, something has to be seen while you're hearing something. Hear the music, you have to see an image. Now, there are concerts that are exclusively devoted to film music, and they don't project images. But for the most part, as you know, the thing that's really popular now is the performance of an entire score live to an entire picture. And if the picture is not a picture that the, the audience is interested in, they don't think it's a great movie, they're not going to go to the concert, even if they think the score might be great. So when I first moved out here, I truly thought that by now, this sick dependence of film music only being able to be evaluated in conjunction to the movie would be done with. There are so many great scores that I've listened to that exist that were written for turkey movies, movies that just didn't fly. Uh, there's always that percentage of movies in virtually every composer's career, except for a handful of very, very lucky composers. You know, you look at Jerry Goldsmith, 90% of the films he worked on, yeah, fine films, but they're forgotten films for the most part, and so the scores have been forgotten. John Williams, what a lucky guy. Between Spielberg and Lucas, he attached himself to films which have become classics. And so it's so sad. I think of you know, some of the scores of the guy that I studied with, David Rax, and uh, the list is endless. So Leonard Rosenman, Lawrence Rosenthal, everybody of the composers that inspired me when I moved out here had a wealth of scores that were really great but were written for unsuccessful films. And as a consequence, they disappeared. So that's point number three. Point number four is, this is a funny one, there's nothing more boring than to hear someone complain about being typecast. But here I go. I'm not just the Hellraiser guy, the horror guy. That's my greatest fear, of course, is that I'm only going to be remembered for one score. Hellraiser, which I did a hundred years ago. Listen, I'm thrilled. I'm not complaining. I'm very, 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 very fortunate that that film came when it did, and it changed my life in the best of ways. And as a composer, it helped me figure out who the hell I was. I didn't know at the time, but apparently 
that was the turning point for me in terms of my writing. Again, a perfect example of the point I just made, which is why is that considered the most important score that I wrote? Of all the films I've done, it's the only one that's become a cult classic. And as a consequence, I hear about it constantly in discussions I have about the things I do. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not complaining. I'm the luckiest guy in the world, absolute luckiest guy in the world. Yes, I've done a shitload of horror films that continue to do them. Do I enjoy doing them? They allow a composer to do things that no other genre can do. And I have to feel warm in my heart knowing that if any of these white concert, contemporary concert composers that work in a dissonant language were to try to make it in movies, chances are they'd be doing horror films too. And so it makes me, I guess, closer to that world than if I was doing romantic comedies. So I can't complain, really. The ability to experiment, it's really a, a solid option. There's a potential of doing some remarkable things in that genre that they're not in any other genre. However, having again said that, as you know, this is the Oscar season, and the two genres of films and film, anything connected to them, for the most part, that is completely eliminated from consideration are horror films and comedy films. They just don't make it. They don't cut it. And of course, at this time of the year, when this is all happening, I guess the best score was just announced. The best five nominees were just announced this morning. And it's hard not to wish that I, one day I'd be one of those. I've given up. It's not because I know that I believe the music stinks. It's just that the Academy has no interest in horror films. And they're embarrassed by them. You know, they just, it has to be a high quality, dramatic movie to get recognition. I feel bad for the comedians. You know, people who work in comedy films as well. That's not an easy thing to do. And yet they miss the grade as well. As I said, there's nothing more boring to hear someone complain about being typecast. Everyone does get typecasted sooner or later. I just hope that I'm not with the fans, at least, known as simply the Hellraiser Guide to the World at Large. These points that I'm writing are basically for the World at Large, because I know the fans are much more sympathetic. They get it, you know, that they're not going, yeah, he's just the Hellraiser guy. Why should I listen to the score he's doing for Echo 3? I mean, come on, it's not horror. Anyway, fifth, here's some of the fifth point that in my better moments as a teacher and mentor, I have helped inspire and encourage beginning film composers to stay on course and to pursue their dream, to help them believe in their talent and to know. They can become whatever it is they want to be. As you know, I teach, and some of my happiest moments have been in situations where actually I've made somewhat of a difference in a young composer's life, or even an older composer's life. We're trying to get closer to that Hollywood dream of being the next John Williams or Rachel Portman or whatever. So that's a good thing. I hope that some of the composers that have passed in my door will remember me fondly for having done more positive things for them than negative. Six, 
in my best moments, and this is the last one, that in my best moments, I was a good father to my two kids and a loving presence to my friends and to all that I have met. When you're younger, you can sort of, it passes through your head. And if you get asked that question, which I really never have, not that I can recall, I would have come up with something maybe similar to this spontaneously, uh, but it, it wouldn't, of course, have had the same meaning because I was much younger and not even contemplating that the clock is going to strike 13 at some point and the party's going to be over. As you get over, it's inevitable those thoughts start to come into your head. So you think about it in a much different way. Yeah, I don't know what point in these composers' careers that you ask them that question, but if you ever get a chance to ask them 20 years later as they're aging, it'd be interesting to see if their answer is the same as it was the first time you asked them when they were younger. What an answer. What a great answer. It's one of the best answers of that final question I've ever had. That's terrific. Christopher Young, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for joining us on Talking Soundtracks. I am so honored to have been asked by you to be a part of your show. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. I do hope you have enjoyed both parts of my interview with Golden Globe and two-time Emmy-nominated composer and orchestrator Christopher Young. The Talking Soundtrack theme was composed by David Cosina. I leave you with a piece from one of the schools that Christopher mentioned that was shortly due for release when we talked in December 2022. It is the cue, Hear the Souls We Weep, from the score for the 2023 horror film, The Offering. My sincere thanks again to Christopher Young for joining us on Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast. And until we meet again, for me, Jason Drury, is take care and happy listening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the program, and David Cosina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sinsound Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate the show and write a brief review. Reviews help introduce potential listeners to the show. And while you're at it, head over to Tee Public to get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net.